A good book, in my opinion, is the fruit of a work of a servant. Someone who's willing to do the hard work in love to dig into the mine of truth and bring out some gold for the rest of us. Dan Doriani is one such miner, and this metaphor has room to grow. Dan is adept at taking gold he mines from scripture and the world and melting it down into beautiful and helpful shapes. This is a great book that we're going to talk about. It will provide you concentrated, accessible help in applying scripture. I hope you enjoy the conversation I had with the author, Dan Doriani, about this topic, Bible application, as much as I did. Welcome to the Bible Study Magazine podcast season two. We're talking about Bible application, and today we're going to talk about Bible application with somebody who's done a fair bit of writing on the topic. I've got his book right here, Putting the Truth to Work, The Theory and Practice of Biblical Application, Dr. Dan Doriani. Dr. Doriani, let me just start by asking you, how do you serve the body of Christ? Oh, great question, and, and thanks for the phrasing. I am a uh, professor at Covenant Theological Seminary, and so that's my main calling. I probably preach uh, 30 times a year, one way or another, and I do believe that that serves the church. I don't preach every week at the same church anymore, but I like to give pastors a break, especially during COVID season, because their lives are so complicated. I speak at conferences and I also write books. I also serve the kingdom of God and the people of God by loving my wife, my children, and my grandchildren, and my friends. Amen. I can say the same. The Lord's given us uh, some similar jobs overlapping. We get to serve the church by teaching individual churches and by serving many churches. And you come with a helpful blend of pastoral and academic experience. And as I've been reading your book, actually for the second time, I uh, I have the my first go through just filled with highlights. And I actually went to the trouble of typing them all out, which I don't usually do for my physical books. Uh, one thing I really noticed was that you you had that academic accuracy, but you also had that pastoral heart. And you showed that you'd actually had to talk to real people about what uh, the Bible says. So l- let me ask you some questions about your book. When you wrote this book, and it's been a good two decades ago, you said that there was a real lack in this area, books about the theory and practice of Bible application. You said that application was left mainly to the intuition of pastors. That wasn't all bad. It still isn't because good shepherds are good appliers, but it's not all good either. Do you think that situation has changed? Do, do we now have more material or enough material on Bible application? Uh, yes, I think the situation has improved. I think that we probably still don't have a lot of books on application per se. Um, what I noticed when I was working on my book is there are a lot of books with a chapter on application, and they were usually very good chapters. Um, there was a handful of books, particularly about application, they tended to be quite short. And, uh, you know, very much written for pastors. So what I was trying to give is a full-length treatment. So the people uh, that I think we should thank the most are Kevin Van Hooser, because he doesn't technically write about Bible application, but everything he has to say touches on that somehow or other. You know, the, the, the idea of the drama of redemption, that we're, we're characters living out a story, and we're, we're entering, this isn't his term, uh, but a habitable text. You know, you can live in the world of the Bible, you can enter the stories, it's written that way. 
And, and then, you know, the Bible doesn't tell you every last thing you improv to some extent based on your character and the situation you're in. I think that's a great point. And I think it's helped a lot of people. And we also have other books. Uh, in fact, one of them uh, is um, Van Hooser's Brainchild, uh, at least in part, uh, Moving Beyond the Bible to Theology, which I think uh, is a good book in a lot of ways. It doesn't cover everything. Tim Keller, of course, whether he says he's talking about application or not, uh, he's talking about application. And especially his little book on preaching. And then there are other books. I, I just, when I knew you were going to ask this question, I really like a man who's not all that well known. And I think he should be better known. His name is Dennis Johnson. Yes. Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim. I think it's a wonderful book. And again, it doesn't uh, constantly declare that it's about application, but uh, Dennis is another one of these people that, you know, preaches a lot and he's just a very tender man and has a pastoral heart, as you say. Uh, and so the book has a lot of information that would help a pastor who wonders how to apply the Bible. We had Dr. Van Hooser on the podcast for the first season. That was one of my favorite episodes. They're all my favorite episodes, but I read his book, Hearers and Doers, put out by good old Lexham Press. And that's the emphasis. Right. Yeah. Hearers and doers. That's right. I should have said that. You you wrote in uh, Putting the Truth to Work that to be motivated by grace is to serve God through a love evoked by his prior love. It's to give God from the bounty he first gave us. And as you read, as I read that, that reminded me of John Piper's argument in books like Future Grace that the ultimate and proper motive of obedience isn't actually gratitude, although, of course, that's not wrong. My dissertation had a whole chapter on gratitude, but the ultimate one is love. And he says there's a difference. Do you agree? And if so, what's that difference? Uh, So I agree with his uh, broad point that gratitude can come across as a deficit motivation, like God has given so much to me, now it's time to give to God. And that, that can uh, induce guilt, which, of course, he doesn't want to do, neither do you or I. It is true, of course, that the Bible does say we should be thankful, and we should operate with a thankful heart. <clears throat> so we could, we could view thankfulness as, a, as an aspect of love. We could view it as an aspect of guilt, and that's what Piper wants to disallow. Or we could view it as an aspect of love, and that's what we want to allow. So to use a simple illustration, uh, if, if my uh, dear friend or wife or child uh, disappoints me greatly, I still love them and I forgive them and help them when they got into perhaps a position because of their own folly. Um, and I love them despite their demerit or lack of uh, performance at the moment. On the other hand, um, you know, if my wife makes a fabulous meal, even though I don't you know, we have a division of labor and I don't usually do the dishes. I do them, you know, under, I do them fairly often, but not all the time by any means. I might say, hey, I know it's not proper for me to do the dishes. I'm just so grateful that I'm going to do the dishes. Well, that that's gratitude as a form of love, right? So um, love has to be the main motivation. And, you know, it just struck me, I knew you were going to ask this question, that, um you know, the, the two chapters about gifts in 1 Corinthians, chapter 12 and 14, which tell us we have gifts and we should use them to edify the body, happen to have a chapter about love in the middle. So that everything, you know, if we're grateful for God's gifts, then we, you know, we, we love people. And if we feel we have an ob- obligation to use the gifts God has given us, well, then 
we do it in love. So everything needs to be done ultimately out of a spirit of love. Uh, there's no question Jesus gave us the love commandment. Uh, one person said, uh, we can only do what we love. And that, of course, is a useful exaggeration, not a true statement. Um, but, you know, we find a way to do what we love to do. And if I love uh, photography or hiking, then somehow, even if my time is is dear and I don't have a lot of money, I'll still find time to go hiking. And I'll, if I have very limited funds, they may go to that camera. Uh, somehow improving my process of taking pictures. So love is the ultimate motivator. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was that in your book, I saw you digging into a question that I've really been fascinated by for a number of years. You seem to have been influenced as I have by John Frame. You can't see it right now on that side of my office. I've got all his books and I bought them all in Logos. I wanted to have paper and digital copies, bought all with my own money. Yeah. And what he does when it comes to application is collapse meaning and significance. Um, I've often felt that that is helpful, but sometimes been puzzled to, to see, does that really work? And I want to tell you what you said and then have you reflect on it. Um, you said that the, you, you, you brought up Christer Stendhal as an example of someone who um, talks about this topic as well. Um, you said that there is a difference between meaning and significance, but in many places in the Bible, the distance between the two is so short and so obvious that it, it you might as well collapse them. So when you read, you know, um, be kind one to another, we don't have to think very carefully through if you're a dispensationalist, what dispensation are we in? And, you know, the already not yet. Okay, no, no, just just be you kind. Have, you don't have to define the word kind meticulously. We know what it means to be kind to each other, right? Right. Uh, but there are places where we need to avoid, you said, rushing to relevance before exegesis is complete. In other words, you got to do your Bible study. This is the Bible Study Magazine podcast. So you've got your straightforward text, rules and ideals, which even a six-year-old can see immediate application for, like be kind to one another, rejoice in the Lord always. Um, did I kind of get that right and help us understand when it is helpful to distinguish and when it's helpful to collapse meaning and significance? Right. So um, I'll use two examples. Uh, we'll just take a command, honor your father and your mother. And that seems as straightforward as can be. In a sense, all you need to do is know who your parents are and try to honor them. And you know that honor uh, means a certain attitude. And at a, a, a seven-year-old level, or I like to also think of people who are perhaps mentally impaired somewhat and yet love Jesus, uh, they can understand the gist of that. On the other hand, um, honor your father and mother actually does get complicated. A lot of things get complicated when you decide you have to teach other people. So um, when you start looking at what a father is, uh, the kings of Israel were called fathers. And Elisha called Elijah his father, even though he wasn't his biological father. And, uh, you know, John tells us to honor our fathers in the faith indirectly. I'm not quoting right now. Um, and so we realize, oh, my, um, oh my, my Christian leader is a father figure to me. And ideally... My political leaders are father figures. And so there's a simplicity to honor your father and your mother. And yet if you start uh, noticing uh, 
there are more kinds of fathers. And then you start asking, well, let's see, maybe if, if a father is somebody who has authority over me, maybe my peer is actually my father in some ways. I, I may be a father to them in some ways. And they may be a father to me because I'm more skilled in one area or more mature. And my wonderful friend is more mature in another area. And so we're, we're almost like fathers to each other. So there's, there's a simplicity and yet there's also a depth. Now, which one was I doing when? So when I say honor your father, your mother, a five-year-old, you know, uh, can do that. But a five-year-old honors mom and dad by obeying. 15-year-old obeys by obeying without rolling their eyes. A 25-year-old obeys. You mean honors. Yeah. Sorry. So I said, well, uh, yeah, 15-year-old honors mom and dad by obeying without slouching and rolling the eyes. 25-year-old honors mom and dad by listening carefully to their counsel and very, very politely saying when you're not able to follow their counsel. Um, and so as you go through life, you realize you have to that's, that's actually application, I think. As I go from 15 to 25, and then at 45, I'm maybe taking care of my parents, and, and I have to do that with honor, but also maybe tell them things they don't want to hear about their diet, let's say. Um, so there's, there's this overlap is occurring between uh, understanding and application. But then I'm, I'm actually digging into the text more when I realize that father covers somebody like David, who's called the father of Israel, and Elijah, who's called the father of Elisha. And, and I'll give you one more example, um, and that is uh, the phrase, the little sentence, mini sentence in Philippians, their God is their belly and their end is destruction. Now, you can read that, and I've heard people read it, to say, see, you should not be overweight. And, you know, you're not overweight, and I'm not overweight, and so we don't need that, that commandment because... I don't have a big fat belly, neither do you. And so we're fine. We can move on. Uh, but if you exegete, what you find is that the word belly doesn't exactly mean what in, in New Testament times, doesn't exactly mean what belly means today. And it means, the term is koilia, you probably know this, and it means your appetites. And so I may have a flat stomach, but my appetites may be seriously disordered. And um, if I just yield to every appetite, the end of that is destruction. So that's an example of a time when at least a teacher might think, oh, this is so simple, the belly. But, you know, you do your work and you never know when you'll find out that there's a, um, a difficulty in, a, in the correlation between a term in Greek or Hebrew and English. And belly is certainly one of those. Yeah, so good Bible application has to involve good Bible study. But what I liked about what you said in your book is that you notice something that any self-conscious reader will notice, that that line between when you're doing Bible study and when you're applying is very much permeable. Yes. And there are times when it's really hard to tell what exactly are you doing. And so I like the hermeneutical spiral idea, you know, popularized to me by Grant Osborne. I read that whole thick book in seminary. It was massively helpful for me uh, because it helps me realize, okay, actually I'm kind of doing all those things at once my mind is actually on the exegesis and the application. 
at the same time. And we tell students something very tidy, you know, explanation, illustration, application, etc. And that's helpful, you know, that that's a, a guide, but it's kind of like riding a bike. You tell people, okay, do this stuff in this order, but then when they actually become proficient at it, they don't have to think of it like that. And, and it's helpful to name that fact, to say, look, you're not really doing what you were taught. You're doing something better. You're, you're, you're doing exegesis and application at the same time. Sure. You're very sensitive in your book to issues of legalism and antinomianism. And I don't, I don't know what Christians, uh, you know, who are at all careful about the way they live their Christian lives and read their Bibles. I don't know any of them that aren't interested in that question. We want to keep in the middle of the road, as the old song says, not to fall into any ditches. So I just love what you said about application that you said it's, it's certainly a divine gift, but not all divine gifts are unmediated. You said, we pray, give us this day our daily bread, yet we're also commanded to work for it. And you give some passages. We, you said, we pray for wisdom and we search it out like Proverbs 2 tells us. So, so too with application, you said. It's a gift when God makes words strike their targets, yet he takes our words for his arrows. I think you're talking about preachers and teachers there. Can you provide an example of a time when wise application that you made as a Bible teacher felt like an unmediated gift and a time when you had to work out your own application with fear and trembling, more like that belly example you had to do your study? Yeah. Well, um, let me just say, first of all, when I started the book, um, putting the truth to work, I interviewed about a dozen preachers that I thought were very, very good preachers. And all of them were good at applying the Bible. And I asked all of them what they do, and their answers were remarkably unenlightening. And so I decided my job is to help people surface what they're doing accidentally. And I mean, if I'd interviewed 50 people, I certainly would have found some who were who had a good theory. But most of us like, you know, I listen to my people and I read the newspaper and I meditate on the text. And that's about all you get out of them. Um, and there's a reason for that. And that is that the pastor has a great number of experiences in which their words strike a target um, far more powerfully than than one could ever expect. So I'm going to give you I'll try to give you three scenarios just quickly uh, where that happened. Um one, and, and sometimes people tell you years after the fact what happened in a sermon. So I happened to see a woman who was in my church when I was a pastor. Um, and she said, well, you know, my, my uh, twins are, are nine now. And I said, that's great. That's great. And she said, you know, you remember that we talked about this and we prayed about this. And, and um, you know, I went to six specialists and I wasn't having a baby and wasn't, and I'd given up and, and, and then once, and just as I was ready to give up, um, there was a sermon in which you said, just a quick aside, that in the Bible, seven's the number of perfection, and six is one short of perfection. And I was talking about the book of Revelation, where, you know, six is one, it's, it's valid in, in the book. And she said, so I decided to go to one more specialist. <laughs> and she found the right one. And behold, she has nine-year-olds whom she dearly loves. And I, at first I thought, that's just silliness. And I thought, no, actually it's not. Um, it's, it's an unexpected application. But she said, you know, the Bible says don't quit early. And there's, you know, times when the Bible says do something seven times, like forgive seven times, right? 
of your brother sins against you seven times in a day. And so she said, by golly, if seven is the perfect number, I'm going to, I'm going to do it seven times. Now, uh, the other thing that I experienced a lot of times, so, so I was a pastor of a large church with a, you know, kind of a big building, but not real big. And um, so I had to preach, or I shouldn't say had to, I had the enormous privilege of preaching three or four times on a Sunday because the building wasn't big enough to hold everybody. And I, I uh, my style of preaching, which I've written about in one place, is uh, preaching in a mild state of panic. And the idea is you fill yourself up with way more than you have time to say. Uh, you load up and and then you don't look at your notes all that much. And uh, you have plenty in there and you collect your, you know, you highlight what you want to quote. Uh, but what would happen is that I would, uh, because I wasn't reading my notes or memorizing my notes, they would be somewhat different. And I had a Bible study at night where we would talk about the sermon on Sunday nights. And it was amazing how often somebody would say something and they'd say, no, he didn't say that. And then somebody else would say, no, he said it at 930, but not at 11. And that reminded me that that um, what I think is important is not necessarily, uh, you know, I said, I have to say this. It's more like things that were sparking out of me. Uh, and all pastors have that experience. Um, every Everybody who preaches a lot has somebody walk up at some point in their life and say, you said this, it changed my life. And you say back, uh, that's a great statement, but you must have heard somebody else because that's not in any of my notes. <laughs> I, 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 one person said to me once, and I said, that's a great statement. I'm so glad you heard it. I'm so glad, glad God changed your life through it. But... I would never say that aloud in a sermon. I just, it's too raw. And the guy looked at me and started quoting my sermon to me. And I said, uh, got it, got it. Um, I know why I said that. Something had just happened the night before. I was working through it. My emotions were raw. And so I said something that was raw and God used it to change his life. So um, that's arrows striking where you, uh, you know, you load your quiver and you start shooting and God makes them strike. I, will, I met my wife on uh, the musical mission team. It was a choir that traveled in Europe, a lot of grad students, seminary students, and undergrad students from a Christian college. And I was preaching in Switzerland. And of course, I don't know these people. I just met them the day before. I love to meet new people. So maybe I knew three people that I'd had some conversations with. And I preached a message. I don't remember what I preached on. And afterward, a lady came up to me and said, I've been really praying about whether I should um, basically obey the mission's uh, I don't know if it was command or request to go be a missionary in Egypt. And, and because of what you said, I'm going to go. And what that made me feel was an awe before the Lord. Of course, how could I possibly know what the needs and questions are in, among even a small group of people? You know, there might be secrets that only they know. No doubt there are. And he's going to use my words taken from his word. I'm preaching his word to guide people. And that, that made me feel very humbled. And uh, I, I guess I, to bring a sense of dread uh, in a holy way, not in a fearful way. You know, like, wow, the Lord could use these words to radically change the lives of people. 
believe that Tyndale's plowboy, the average person, should have the Bible in contemporary language. That Bible translations, therefore, are key tools for the Great Commission that Christ gave us to disciple the nations, to teach them to observe everything Christ has commanded us. I believe that regular Christians can and must read and study their Bibles on their own. I believe that we're not on our own, that the Spirit will guide us into all truth. And I believe that one of the Spirit's most important tools for doing this is other human teachers, despite our own failures. I believe in Bible study. And all this is why I find myself constantly turning to Logos Bible software and all my work. It makes the Bible text accessible to me at a level of detail I just don't get elsewhere. And it also gives me quick and inexpensive access to the work of many, many careful Bible teachers. The new Logos 9 now makes it even easier for me to do this. And I want to show you what I mean. If I type in any Bible passage into the passage guide, I get a prioritized list of links to all my commentaries. Logos 9 is all about small improvements that add up to something bigger. And now, in this new release, Logos 9, Logos gives me extra information about all my many commentaries, including even what denomination their authors come from. This is information that does help me in my Bible study. I'm all the time doing this, checking on my commentators, getting help from them, understanding scripture. Logos 9 has other small but big improvements like dark mode for all you dark mode people out there. I'll never understand you, but more power to you. It has the totally revamped fact book, a great place to start your study on all kinds of biblical topics. Christianity can get unmoored from the Bible, and what a horror it is when that happens. Don't let it happen to you. Use the best Bible study tools there are. Use Logos 9. Go to Logos.com and check out some of our base packages. Download our mobile app and start using the tools there. If you listen to a podcast about Bible study, you're probably pretty serious about it. You should not remain content with the free resources available on the internet. Check out the new Logos 9. You asked me about about struggling, and I didn't answer that. So, uh, oh, yeah, we re you know, I struggle at times. Um, I, I actually was struggling at, uh, there's somebody I dearly loved whose first husband abandoned her, and she asked me to do, I did her first wedding, and then she said, will you do the second wedding, you know, seven years later? And it was, for those who have doubts, I mean, her husband abandoned her for no reason whatsoever. It's just as one side as it gets. And I wanted to give a great sermon uh, for this person whom I, I really had great affection for. And I still do have affection. And I, I, I said, I, I don't have the proper ending for this. And I was just praying and praying. Um, and I happened to talk to another pastor that day on the phone. And he said something. I thought, oh, thank you. That's it. Um, and I think sometimes we're, you know, we're sometimes we're close to despair. We know we have an application that just isn't that good. It's not right. Um, and sometimes God gives us something, not if we're lazy, but if we do our best, sometimes in the last minute or even while I'm preaching, I've thought, oh, that's the answer. That's the application. It's not common, but it definitely happens. And I do think that uh, God answers, God honors the prayer that is born of sincere but futile labor. I, I don't think we have a right to ask God to give us the application if we didn't try. But sometimes we try and we uh, we falter. We're we're off. Whatever, however you want to describe it.
It's much like what you said in that quote I read earlier about wisdom, that we're supposed to seek it like hidden treasure. And I've used the illustration before when I've preached to kids and teens that, you know, what if I said there's a $100 bill taped under one of your seats? Go. Whoever finds it gets it. You know, what would you do? Everybody would be, you know, scrambling all over the place. Uh, and yet we've got James telling us that if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So I go to counselors, I diligently reach out. I just did this about a significant life decision that I was making. Um, I felt like I still do. Both courses of action were morally appropriate. The Bible's not telling me to do one or not do the other. Um, but I talked to all these counselors and I asked for their wisdom and I prayed and I believe I received it. it. It is just so much like all of the Christian life and the way the Bible is written. You also brought this out. You, we, we've got these statements in the Bible where Paul right next to a statement affirming, you know, God's sovereignty, he'll affirm God, uh, human responsibility about that very same thing. You know, think over what I say yes. because the Lord will give you understanding in all things. Yeah, I'm just affirming, just amening what you said. Now, let you and I are both preachers. We're both Bible teachers. We both also live in the academic biblical studies world. And it seems to me that we both have a desire to take some of the more academic-y stuff and make it accessible both to pastors and at Logos, we call them other Bible nerds, people who may not be formal Bible teachers, but they have the same interest in um, understanding the scripture and use the same tools that the pastors would. Um, so let's take something you said about preachers and two preachers. And, and I want to have you help us uh, make that accessible to more lay Christians. You said, I believe most Bible texts hold more potential applications than one coherent message could develop. The chief task then is not finding something to say, but fingering the one chief application that drives home the central th theme of the text and arrays the subpoints around it. That's very preacher-centric, but how does this apply to regular Bible reading Christians? Yeah, so <clears throat> that's a great question. Thank you so much for that question. Uh, the temptation when you're not um, when you're not uh, trained, I'll say, is to think that the application you just thought of is what everybody needs. Uh, and it may be, it may be universal, but uh, maybe uh, your application is to your marriage, but there are people in your group who aren't married. And maybe it's to your parent in this fantastic statement that I'm going to share it with everybody. Uh, but there are people with no children. Or they have children very different from yours. They could be much older, much younger. Maybe you have a, a very easy child and uh, you are deluded into thinking you're a marvelous parent. Actually, you have marvelous children. And if you share your wisdom, you may offend somebody who, who has tried what you're advocating and it doesn't work because they have an obstreperous child. So it's, it's extremely good to step away and realize um, what I have to say may not be all there is to say. And, you know, sometimes it helps to kind of walk through your audience. When I would prepare sermons sometimes, not all the time, uh, I would think of, of diverse individuals. So I'd think of a 60-year-old woman, a 45-year-old man, a 38-year-old woman with, let's say, three children, and then a 24, you know, two women, two men, um, different ages of life, uh, maybe someone who's had a lot of hardship, maybe someone who's a leader and has a lot of things have turned out well. 
and ask, would I say the same things to all these people? And, you know, that can be very time consuming, but it, it helps to remember that uh, because life situations keep changing and because the questions keep changing, right? So questions about sexuality today are very different from questions about sexuality 20 or 30 years ago if you're, let's say, a youth worker. Because you, you, can't, you don't just have to worry about um, premarital sex. You've got to think about um, transgender and you know, sometimes whole clusters of teenage girls declare their transgender and, and uh, bisexuality is praised in some circles. And you know, people want to find their identity and their sexuality. Those are all relatively new. Uh, you know, we could probably say in Western society that started 50 years ago, but it, it, it hit hard fairly recently. And, and that means that we have to apply the basic biblical teachings about sexuality differently in 2020 from 1970. And a marvelous book about sexuality in 1970 may not give you everything you need to know about the application of Bible teachings on sexuality today. So uh, the questions change, the life situations change. Those are the keys. Uh, and the, you know, the people have varying you know, levels of difficulty of life. Um, so there are many applications and you, I don't know how old you are, but let's just say, I don't know, how old are you? 40. 40. I was going to say 40. Um, I was, I had you at 38 to 42. So as a 40 year old, you're just not identical to everybody you're speaking to. And you know that, but an unlettered, an untrained person can forget that. It is all too easy to forget the people that are going to be listening to you preach and teach. Because especially in my situation, I am in a small church now. I used to be in a very large church. I would have some of a better idea of who's going to be there in a small church. And during COVID, I just don't know. And I'll have people show up and I'll realize, oh my, I just didn't even think about how this passage would apply. So I'm asking the Lord for help right then. I've done my preparation. I usually manuscript my sermons, um, but I'm asking for help right then, like emergency fire insurance help. So let, let me try to translate what you said into a more direct answer to the question that I asked. So you you as a preacher have to think about how to apply the Bible passage that you're preaching to individual, different individuals, different life stages in your church. Um, but an individual by him or herself reading is most naturally going to ask the questions that reflect on their individual lives. Another way that your wisdom could be applied, I think, is that when a 43-year-old woman with four children, two are teens, and two are in elementary school, reads a given passage and immediately sees an application that really is there for her life, um, she needs to recognize and can recognize that the 68-year-old man who's an empty nester and a widower is going to have a different application quite possibly for that passage. And that is just a reflection of the Spirit's wisdom in inspiring the Bible the way he did. The problem is we can't spell all those out when we're preaching. And so what you try to do, if, there, if you think, okay, and, okay, be humble, uh, that's easy. Everybody shares, you know, some tendency to pride, but you can't cover all the ways in which someone would be prideful, but you can hit two or three of the most common ones and make sure you're not hitting the same two or three over and over again. So don't address the person who's successful over and over and over when you are talking about money or success or pride or achievement or working hard, make sure you're also bearing in mind the immigrant, the person who's working for $14 an hour and glad to be hit to have a job for $14 an hour. So, um, 
in any given sermon, you can't hit everybody. But over a span of six weeks, you can cover your people. Yeah, I, I have a relative who is highly educated and uh, and a, an inordinate number of his pastor's applications about pride were directed toward highly educated people. And he kind of eventually got the message like he's harping on this rather than, yes, okay, I acknowledge that's a problem. You know, educated people, they have, you know, knowledge puffs up, um, but it became a hobby horse. Um, it revealed something about where that pastor's heart was more so than it revealed what the text was actually saying to the church in that case. Maybe he was preaching to himself. Maybe he was in danger of pride. And, and we have to censor. We don't necessarily share the application for ourselves every week. Uh, not because we're trying to hide things, but we're just not the typical person in our church in every way. I, that lesson came home to me when for five years, I was the outreach pastor over um, a mission work, and I preached to functionally illiterate people. We used the New International Reader's Version to great effect. I love that. There was this huge cultural gap between me and them, and I had to do, got to do, expository preaching, Bible application for them. It was a really wonderful experience. Occasionally, I had guest preachers come down from the big church uh, who were normally among a very different culture of people, and it was then that I was reminded, wow, they they just they don't see how huge the gap is between the stuff they usually say, the jargon that they assume, the applications that come most naturally to mind, and their actual audience, which makes me value, as you do in your book, that role of the shepherd. The shepherd actually gets to know his sheep and can make applications that fit them. I want to make sure we do not run out of time to talk about one of the most one of the easiest things to kind of uh, sink your teeth into in uh, uh, that you contribute to the discussion as far as I'm concerned. I've actually used this on our uh, Wednesday night prayer meeting last night. We had it on Zoom because of COVID. And I talked through your example from the Sermon on the Mount of the difference between rules and ideals when it comes to Jesus' statement about oaths. Now, what I'm going to ask you to do, because we don't have time to go in detail through all of the seven ways you bring out that the Bible generates applications. But I, I want you to try to give me in a really brief amount of time, a summary of those seven ways the, the Bible generates applications. Yeah, so they're very concrete rules, uh, which would include things like um, greet, greet one another with a holy kiss. And that tells you uh, with a kiss is how, but you should greet each other when you see each other. That, that's a rule. You got to do that. Um, love your neighbors yourself is an ideal. An ideal tells you something very broad, and it's not easy to tell exactly how you should love all your neighbors. That requires prayer, wisdom, counsel, meditation, etc. So a rule tells you exactly what to do. An ideal tells you follow this principle, and it's not going to be clear all the time. That's left to your wisdom and discretion, your prayer. Uh, I also mentioned redemptive acts and narratives, which um, mean God does things that we should reflect on. So, for example, in Exodus, God redeemed an immigrant people, a people that were all sojourners in Egypt. They were all sojourners. And then, and then, because God is a redeemer of sojourners and immigrants and weak people, uh, we have various laws about treating sojourners very well. So, uh, God redeems us. He takes us to Christ. The number one application is believe in Jesus. But let's remember he redeems sinners and outsiders and so forth. 
Um, exemplary acts and narratives are things like, and we have to be very careful with these, but things like David battling Goliath. And in my opinion, you know this, the key was that he saw the text as, he saw the situation as God wanted him to. Everybody was thinking, who will dare to fight the giant? It's terrible, we'll be, we'll be killed. And he said, wait a second, who, who is this fool, this uncircumcised Philistine, this this feckless, powerless giant to go up against the armies of the living God. And, and we should we should see situations the way God does, and that will make us brave. So that's an exemplary act in a narrative. That's number four already. Um, doctrines are first-order statements about the world, and, you know, we're all made in the image of God. That's a statement. That's a theological statement, and it leads us to treat everyone with dignity. Uh, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost or chief or first. That's a first order doctrinal statement. It tells me two things. I need to know I'm a sinner and I need to know that Jesus is my redeemer and that's the way to be right with God. So that's a, those are very, you say, well, no, that's more doctrine. No, that's an application of doctrine. <laughs> it's to say, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Paul says he's a sinner. Oh my goodness. Uh, if Paul's a sinner, 30 years into his Christian life, by the way, then I'm, I'm a sinner too. So that is an application. It's, it's talking to yourself about your identity. Uh, images, and, and maybe the easiest one to talk about uh, would be the rainbow, which God gave us, an image we should see and remember. And of course, the cross is used, as Richard Hayes says so well in one of his books, as an image. We, you know, Jesus died on the cross. And sometimes the cross, just the word the cross stands in for Jesus' sacrifice and the need that we would be willing to sacrifice as well. Last one is songs and prayers, which is just reading the Bible's songs and prayers above all the book of Psalms, but there are many, many prayers in the Bible outside the Psalms, and they teach us how to pray. I mean, some of the some of the Psalms are incredible, the things people say to God. Um, you know, oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Will you forget me forever? Like, I know you forgot me. There's no doubt about that. I just want to know if it's going to go on forever or just for six months or so. And, and that, that psalm teaches us we're allowed to say that to God. And as we read the psalms of the Bible and the prayers of the Bible, it teaches us how to pray and how to, how to sing. So I think I got those in pretty fast, and you may want to focus on one of them or so. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, wanted to, I want to distinguish rules and ideals with that really excellent example that you drew from the Sermon on the Mount. I actually am preaching through the Sermon on the Mount at church whenever I fill in for my pastor, which isn't frequently, he's a faithful preacher, but you know, four or five times a year I'll preach. And I preached on Jesus' statement on oaths. And I am just kicking myself that I didn't look in your book. I already had read that part um, a couple months back when I preached on that passage. It, you, you had a really helpful way through your seven means of, a, of applying the Bible seven ways the Bible generates applications to explain how it is that Jesus could say, and I'll just quote the King James here because it's what's in my mind and heart going back to my childhood, swear not at all. Yep. And I can remember being a kid and thinking, okay, well, I should never, ever give an oath. And I remember being confused, like I see in courtrooms on TV, 
you know, you got to put your hand on the Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. And I even asked myself, I think if I remember right, would I do that given what Jesus said? It sure sounds like a rule, but you bring in the concept of ideals. Help us to understand how that concept helps us apply that passage accurately. Right. So um, first of all, what you have to do is your homework. You have to find out what does the Bible say as, as a whole about oaths. And what you find is that people in the Bible do take oaths, godly people, and they're not rebuked for it. Uh, you find that there are laws that tell us how to take oaths and what to do after you take an oath. And you find God himself taking an oath. He swears by himself. So that tells us that it can't be an absolute prohibition. Uh, because godly people take oaths and God himself take oaths, Jesus must mean something else. And so that's the conundrum. And then we, I take this uh, tool, this intellectual tool of ideals versus rules, and I say it looks like a rule, but it's actually an ideal because we know there are situations in which you can take them. And, and then you ask, okay, number one question in Bible interpretation is what's the context? And the context is Jesus speaking to disciples about life in the kingdom of God. And so then what it means is in the kingdom of God, we don't take oaths. As we speak to each other, we're so reliable that no one would, I, I you know, you didn't say to me, hey, Dan, do you promise to, to come on to this podcast at three o'clock? You took me at my word. And I didn't say to you, hey, do you promise when I log in, you'll be there? Um, and if we have a technical glitch, you'll stick with me and not just hang up on me. I didn't do that because I trust you and you trust me, even though we've not met until this moment. Um, but when we go to the courtroom, the judge doesn't know me. And so he doesn't trust me. And I've never had to swear in a courtroom, but I have, I've planned when I'm asked if it ever should occur to say, um, Your Honor, I want you to know that you don't need to ask me to do this. I keep my word, and I tell the truth to the best of my ability at all times. But I will take the oath for your sake because there can be immense pressure to be deceptive in legal settings. I simply want to say that. But the judge doesn't know me, and the judge has unfortunately probably met a lot of liars. And so for his sake and the sake of the legal system, I'll take the oath even though um, if I'm a true disciple, it would be superfluous. Of course, we can look at God who takes an oath because he knows that we're liars and therefore we don't trust each other and therefore we don't always trust him. So he says, okay, I'll take an oath. I don't need, God doesn't need to take an oath, but he condescends to give us what we need. So there's an example of an ideal. Jesus sets up an ideal in my kingdom, citizens of my kingdom, the poor in spirit, all those people I just said are blessed. We don't need to tell others, hey, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. I'm telling you, what I'm telling you is the truth. You can believe me. You, you can just say yes, and people know I'll be there at three o'clock. You can just say no, and people know that you're telling the truth. Nonetheless, if we take that as a rule, if we don't distinguish between rules and ideals, then suddenly we have Bible contradictions. And that's not where faithful disciples go. They assume they're wrong when they see an apparent contradiction, but they're left with confusion then. How do I apply this passage? And you have some Christian groups and some cultish groups actually saying, we would never ever take an oath. Uh, and other Christians are divided over this. Well, this rules versus ideals, that is something you draw out of the text. 
I don't see this as imposed on it. You're drawing it out because you're seeing that this is the only way to resolve the apparent contradiction. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, when I started the project, I did not have that in my mind. As I was, I was actually working another book on Bible interpretation, and I started noticing things that um, needed to be addressed that were, I'll say, anomalies or riddles to me. And I started searching the literature, and eventually I came up with it as a result of examining many texts. Um, so I, I hope I'm right, but it certainly wasn't something I, you know, concocted and then threw on the Bible. Sure. And, and I don't think you would say that this is the list of seven that could never be added to or subtracted from, or, you know, the, the pie could not be sliced in any other way. Like so many hermeneutical tools, Bible interpretation tools, it's there to help. And if you find a passage that doesn't seem to fit the model, well, the model may need some adjustment. But there's a passage where the model is really helpful. Let me give you another passage and see if your model can help us. I warned you about this in advance. You know, just in case our user, our listeners are wondering, how is it that he knew what questions were coming? Has he moved from the Presbyterian church over to the charismatic? Was well, it prophetic? No, I sent you the questions in advance. So here's Proverbs 22.6. I'll just read it from the NIV. Start children off on the way they should go. And even when they are old, they will not depart from it. One of my children is, uh, I can hear them just above me right now. This, this passage means a lot to me now. What else do I want more than my children not turning away from the, the way that I've started them off in? But is this a rule? Is it an ideal, a doctrine? What? How do we apply this? Yeah, I, I put it in the category of ideals uh, because I think that's the way most of Proverbs is meant to be read. And you know, one of the things we know uh, from Proverbs is that it does not give us a lot of hints about how to read the book, but it gives us some. And for a lot of people, the key, and I, if you can read a text, I'll read a text. For a lot of us, the key is in Proverbs 26. Four and five. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'm going to quote it just so I get it right. And it says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And what that tells us is that we have, uh, sometimes you have to rebuke a fool so they stop spouting folly. Maybe they're harming people. And other times you should not stop a fool because it will tangle you up in pointless debate and you just have to let them go. Uh, because, you know, especially an intelligent fool can explain in massive detail. So this is the hint within the book itself about how do we interpret the book. And the book itself in that passage tells us that the Proverbs are not ironclad rules. It, it doesn't always work a certain way. Um, and so uh, start your children off in the way of the Lord uh, or train up your children in the way of the Lord. Uh, first of all, there are there are multiple interpretations of that one. One is that it's ironic. You know, you train up a child in the way he should go his way, and the Hebrew can be taken that way. I'm not saying it should be. I'm saying it's a plausible interpretation. Uh, you train up in his way, and I got to tell you something, when they're old, they won't depart. Basically, you know, let them go. Don't correct them. Um, and another one is train them up in his way, meaning God's way. And if you train up in God's way, then he won't depart. Or, and the other view is, you know, be careful and be nuanced and each child needs you know a different path and if you have i don't know how many children you have but if you have anybody who has more than two children knows that the way we nurture and discipline them is a little bit different um 
And so uh, we're not quite certain what it means. I think the third meaning is correct. But then we also come up against the human experience of extremely godly people who have, let's say, four children. And let's say four, two are very devoted to the Lord. One is a tremendous rebel, and one kind of causes trouble and seems to be a believer, but very weak. And and um, it's the same parents, you know, uh, and they seem to be training up all their children in the Lord's way. So we have an experiential, we don't interpret the Bible through experience, but uh, the experience quickens us to certain questions. Have I understood this correctly? And then, and then we realize that um, there are other, you know, there are proverbs that tell us things like about, you know, bringing in the harvest and, you know, you'll, if you work hard, you'll have a good harvest. Well, I mean, sometimes, sometimes there's a war and somebody comes in and burns all the crops and you don't have a good harvest. Um, and we can look at people in the Bible, maybe who had um, children who were rebellious and, you know, maybe they weren't, we don't know if they were perfect parents, but we seem to, seems that they tried. And so we have various reasons for not taking it as an ironclad rule. Some of them are experiential. Some of them are biblical. Some of them are finding the clues in the book of Proverbs itself. It's a little bit like the book of Revelation, which we're not touching on today, but, you know, deeply mysterious book. But every once in a while tells us, take certain things symbolically. It tells us this represents that. I think about seven times, maybe the book of Revelation says, go ahead with symbolic interpretations or spiritual interpretations. So then we're free to do that. Yeah. In fact, when I've heard those alternate ways to translate Proverbs 22, 6, what I've observed is that it seems to me these are efforts to get away from the, um, the, the interpretation that people think is most natural of those words, the rule interpretation, that if you do this, then your children will turn out this way. Instead, if we appeal to it as an ideal, the way Proverbs itself authorizes us to do, then we don't have to retranslate it. We don't have to, one I heard was, train up a child according to his bent. And that kind of gets us around the difficulty of those godly parents who have, you know, one kid who doesn't turn out so well, who's actually a rebel. Um, instead, we can leave the translation as it is. The translations are pretty unified in this and instead see it as that ideal. I think that's really, really helpful. Now, Dr. Doriani, thank you for your time. I'm going to be sensitive toward that time. Thank you for using your gifts to serve us. I want to ask you to do one more thing that I haven't asked any other guests, but at this point in the season, I just find myself in my heart reaching out to the Lord, wanting to pray together uh, for our listeners, with our listeners, uh, for the Lord's help in applying his words faithfully and obediently. Would you be willing to pray for us as we close I out? I would be happy to do that. Thank you for asking me that. Heavenly Father, um, we are two men talking to each other over screen, and yet we know that people will listen, and they will listen with innumerable questions about how to apply the Bible to themselves. Uh, Lord, it is a, a one of the hardest years in the life of many, many people who are listening to this recording, and they don't know how to love their neighbors themselves. They don't know how to comfort a dear friend or family member who's filled with fear or anxiety or even anger, uh, perhaps over political or medical issues. Uh, perhaps they don't know how to calm their own fears, how to not be afraid. 
Lord, I pray that as we read your Bible, we will take the time to be slow and careful, even if not an expert, not trained, to believe that you will speak to us if we read carefully and slowly and prayerfully, that we can hear your voice, we can find your guidance, Lord, not maybe by staring at one verse or our favorite chapter or book of the Bible, but reading widely up our eyes to light on those parts of your word, your truth, that your spirit has for us that we might listen and find peace, find healing, and find the capacity to serve those around us. Lord, I thank you for uh, giving us in, in the incarnation a sort of a down payment on all that you are going to do. And I pray, Lord, that you would do the rest of what you have for us first uh, daily in this life, and then, Lord, in eternal life with you forevermore, uh, alone in our families, with our friends, uh, with our communities of all sorts. And we ask that you would hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you again so much for your time. Great to be with you. Thank you for inviting me to share the adventure of studying God's Word, applying to God's people. Dr. Dan Doriani is an energetic guy. He just came from playing tennis, he told me, and I just had to chuckle at the way he was bouncing all over the place in the interview. After decades of studying and teaching and applying scripture to himself and to others, he's still manifestly excited by the opportunity and dedicated to carrying it out faithfully. So am I. Dedicated listeners of the Bible Study Magazine podcast may remember that I and Walter Moberly didn't quite see eye to eye on what the limits of appropriate application are. When does an interpretation or application of a Bible passage fall out of bounds too far from the Spirit's intent? And you heard Dr. Doriani too, talking about a case, an edge case, in which a woman ended up having twins because she went to a seventh fertility specialist. I don't know that either he or I would want to say that the Bible mandated her seventh doctor visit, but a person eager to be led by the Spirit who sees the general biblical pattern in which seven is the number of completeness and then is blessed with twins, bringing her one past completion, is that good Bible application? I want to invite you to weigh in on this question in the comments on this video on YouTube. Thank you for tuning into the Bible Study Magazine podcast.